So you're listening to Data Skeptic. And you can imagine that people like you are also listening to Data Skeptic. Would you like your message to reach them or your company's message to reach them? Why not consider advertising with us? Send your inquiries to advertising at dataskeptic.com. You know, I often debate about whether or not we talk about p-values enough on Data Skeptic. Does it really matter? We well, have reasons to doubt what's going on with p-values. What about false discovery rates? What about all this? And, you know, are we moving away from that? What about the reputability crisis? There's so much to be said here, I've not commented enough, but perhaps we can start a little bit today. Let's just talk about p-values. I mean, if we can't make a single data point interpretable, what the heck can we do? Welcome to Data Skeptic Interpretability, a podcast about statistics, data visualization, and most importantly, inference. What sorts of conclusions do people draw from data as presented in certain ways? This week on the show, I've got Loni Bazansaw to help us with some insights along those lines. All that and more right after the break. Thanks to this week's sponsor, Terminus DB. Terminus DB is an open source database built for data people. It's a fast, in-memory graph database designed specifically for the web age. Terminus DB will greatly reduce the time and effort required to build any application that shares, manipulates, or edits data. The result is a unified, well-structured, and refined data. That's the jet fuel for future business. There's a great white paper you can read at terminusdb.com that'll explain concepts like succinct data structures and delta encoding. Coding. The methodologies behind Terminus DB that make it a tool that is very much like Git, but for data. It's an open source project, and it'll cost you nothing to check it out. Open source on GitHub, and you can find that link and a bunch more information by visiting terminusdb.com. T E R M I N U S D B.com. Okay, so my name is Loni Besançon. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at Linköping University in Sweden, and I studied my position two years ago, basically. Can you tell me a little bit about your specific areas of research and your interests along those lines? So I got my PhD in Paris, working with human-computer interaction and visualization. And I started working through the course of this PhD on methodology and statistics a bit, trying to understand how I could try to improve on what people in my field are doing. And then I saw that there was a lot of problems with uh, p-values and NHST, and I started getting interested in this. And one of my colleagues was working on this a lot. And through discussion with them, we decided to pursue some work in this direction. And then I met a researcher here as a statistician, and we started working on this together, uh, how visualization could help in terms of statistics, interpretations, and inferences. And when you say interpretations, what does that mean? It seems that statistics, they tell the whole story, right? They're the numbers that describe the data. What's to interpret? Well, they do tell the story. The problem is that very often in research papers, researchers will tend to interpret them in a way that they can write a paper about it, right? So if they're trying to test whether a new drug or something is efficient against a specific disease, they will want to come up with a conclusion, not just put numbers there. So that's uh, something they will want to write in their abstract, in their conclusion, in a discussion. And very often they will tend to interpret in a very binary way, which is what is problematic often with the report of p-values and lots of papers in different fields, actually. Yeah, the binary thing is a bit interesting because if we're going to test a drug, it, it seems very natural. At the end of that, you'd like to say, well, does the drug work? Yes or no? Where's the breakdown? 
I think in this case, so people should try to interpret a bit. It's fine to put interpretation in there, but it's not fine if you apply just a random criteria that was decided ages ago. So very often with p-values, people go for the threshold of 0.05 or 0.01, and they just apply it blindly. So if they get a value that's a bit above 0.05, then they would just say, okay, this drug doesn't work at all. And they won't think that maybe actually it's just the data that, that doesn't prove that it could work, but it's, if it's 0.06, then maybe there's something to investigate a bit more with this drug. And so we could lose very interesting drug against specific disease in that case, right? And it can be even worse if you consider that the question that the researchers are trying to answer is, does the drug have actually a specific side effect that's dangerous? And then they get a p-value that's quite small, but very close to 0 0.05. And then they're like, oh, okay, we're good. There's no problem there. So like, we just can put the drug on the market and everything is fine. But actually, I think that happens uh, previously and it's something that's quite problematic. So we want people to interpret a bit, but we also want them to not interpret in a way that's completely like a robot, basically, right? People, we are humans, so we should interpret these data, all the data that we gather as human beings and not just as machines. If it's just a criteria of 0 0.05 being greater or smaller, then the computer can do it for us. We don't even need to write a paper about it. Right, right, that 0 0.05 do you have any idea where that comes from? Why is that the threshold used so often? Probably historical reasons. It was used once and then people started using it again. I'm actually not quite sure where this is coming from. Yeah, good enough for Fisher, I guess, right? Good enough for us. <laughs> In terms of what that really means, I would expect a lot of listeners will already know, but could you give maybe not the textbook definition, but an intuitive understanding? What does it mean if you happen to have that precisely a 0.05 p-value? What does that number represent? I actually don't know an exact definition. The way I see often is, so we're testing for, so let's take the example of a drug again, right? We want to know if it's efficient against the disease and we're going to postulate the opposite. We're going to postulate that it's not efficient. That's the null hypothesis, right, often. And then we're going to try to get data with this drug and then put it onto some statistical test based on the data that we get. Of course, it will be a different test and we will obtain a p-value from that test. And the way I see p-values is the smaller they get, the more likely we are to be able to reject this hypothesis that the drug doesn't work. So being on 0.05 doesn't really mean anything for me. It's just a binary threshold that people put there that's completely random. In some fields, it's 0.01, in other fields, 0.001 even. So I don't see the 0.05 as specific thing per se. I don't use it that way in, in any case. Yeah. Would you mind defining the cliff effect, which I feel like we're standing on the edge of? Yeah. So the cliff effect is often used as a measure of what we call dichotomous thinking or dichotomous inferences. So it corresponds to the very sudden drop of confidence that researchers or people actually not necessarily researchers have when the p-value gets bigger than 0.05. So before that, when it's smaller than 0.05, people are quite confident that the results are okay, that we can reject the non-hypothesis. And when we cross the 0.05 threshold, all of a sudden, they realize that, oh, no, I don't think we can do that anymore. Instead of having something that's quite linear, right, you would expect that, as I said before, when I interpret the p-value for me, it's like the smaller it is, the more likely I am to be able to reject the non-hypothesis. But it's really not the way people do it. It's uh, anything less than 0 0.05 is fine. And all of a sudden, they don't trust the data anymore when it crosses 0 0.05. And that's, that's what we call the cliff effect. A moment ago, I'd put you on the spot to define the p-value. I got to do that comfortably from the host chair because I'm not sure if I could give you the textbook definition off the top of my head. And I hope my degree doesn't get taken away as a result. But, you know, there's so much uh, specific thinking to it. I have to ask, okay, well, what's the number? Am I interested in the positive or the negative effect? Uh, it means I'm going to reject the null or I accept the, you know, there's a whole lot of specificity to that language. 
uh, when you're dealing with just the, the words and the text, how can visualization help bridge this gap? So the idea is that I think you're aware of uh, confidence intervals and, and what they are. There's recent trends in, in statistics or interpretation of statistics to use what we call estimation techniques, which basically doesn't rely on numbers anymore, but more on visual interpretations of, for instance, confidence double crossing specific values or overlapping each other. And the idea there is to try see visually if we think that we have something with the data instead of looking at a number. People who do that tend to think that it's harder to get a specific binary response to something that is visual because it's not as precise as the value, right? And it's something we try to investigate with Union in this paper. Can we make some visualization that are maybe blurry enough or not precise enough for people to interpret the data always correctly in a very binary way? Can we somehow make it fuzzy so people are not sure of what they're looking at so they actually take some more precautions when they interpret the data? And I think that's where visualization has a chance. It can, first of all, present data in a very simple way. Imagine you have to report on 25 different p-values and uh, effect size. If it's just text, it's going to be very difficult to read, probably quite difficult to also understand and memorize. But if it's something visual, I mean, we know that human beings tend to remember images quite well. So first of all, the takeaway message will be there. But also, we expect that people will be able to make lots of comparisons visually and potentially that they won't make them in a very dichotomous way, which is something that is quite nice. And what we try to push for is a way to make this even less binary, if possible. Gotcha. What do you mean by less binary? We want them to not interpret all of this data that they have in a dichotomous fashion anymore. We don't want them to come out and say, we proved A or we disproved B. We want them to say, well, we seem to have with the data we gathered, strong evidence that this might work, or weak evidence that this might not work, or strong evidence that this drug is efficient against this specific disease. If you have something that's visual, first of all, you'll see the effect size all the time, which is something that is quite nice. So it's easier to quantify, but also if the threshold between what is actually strong evidence and weak evidence is a bit fuzzy, then you will tend to be a bit more cautious in your conclusions and you would not go for, we found that this works. I have encountered in my career a very wide spectrum of what I would call visual literacy. I will casually toss around the word histogram and assume people know what that is, even though the vast majority of human beings do not. Despite probably very much having the intellect, you don't need a PhD to read a histogram, but certainly different readers will come to the table with different preparedness for understanding visualization. Who's the target audience for the work we're discussing today? I think there's been some work, so not ours, but there's been some work in the past on how people can interpret confidence intervals, uh, lay people. In our case, we're really targeting researchers, people who work with this kind of data and have to make these conclusions. It's really more like people actually know what they're looking at. It's it's quite likely that they've seen confidence intervals before, that they've seen violent plots before, or that they know about data distributions, that they know about all of these things that will make the plots that we thought of quite easy to interpret. Actually, the, the people that participated in the study, some of them reported, for instance, one of the techniques we tried was called a violin confidence interval, and it looks like a violin plot. And some of them reported, well, this is a nice visualization, but it looks too much like a violin plot. So if you don't have a bigger caption that really says that this is not a violin plot, then we are quite likely to not really know what we're looking at there. So I think the people that we target with this actually know what they're looking at all the time. Uh, almost too smart for their own good in that case. <laughs> Probably, yeah. 
I know we're on an audio medium, which makes this a difficult challenge, but could you give an auditory description of these different visual styles so that people can appreciate some of the ways in which you tried to convey uncertainty? So the third representation that we tried was a rectangle that was filled with a specific color. So we used a line to show the mean. And then in this rectangle, we would see a big chunk of green color that would actually represent the classical 95% confidence interval. And after that, on both edges, we would actually use a gradient to show all the other confidence interval values. So the 96%, 97%, 98%, etc., etc. But without discrete steps, it would just be a gradient all through it. The fourth condition was the same idea with the violin plots. So because the using the whole width of a rectangle might be a bit misleading in some cases, we decided to actually, as we go further away from the mean, shrink the representation and going more and more towards this 99.9% confidence interval. So in this case, we wouldn't use the whole width of a rectangle, but we use this kind of violin shape or raindrop shape around the mean. And the final thing we had just for the second experiment was some kind of also violin confidence interval, but this time we would show discrete steps of all the confidence intervals we have. So we wouldn't represent the 95% as one color and then use a gradient till we fade out. But this time we would show the 80% confidence interval in very dark green and then 85% confidence interval as a slightly paler green and then 90% with a bit paler green as well and so on and so forth till we get to the 99.9% .9 confidence interval. I'll also point out one of the things I appreciate in the paper. You guys leave the source for these plots on GitHub. They're ggplot2 with something that I'm not yet familiar with called brms, also in R. So people can easily, if they like what you've done, use it in their work or reproduce the analysis or that kind of stuff. In addition to that, I was curious if you had any impressions going in. When I looked at these, I liked all of them in different ways. You know, I could see myself thinking, oh, let's use that one for this project or this situation. What are you trying to measure here? How do we know what's the best one if there is a best one? All the materials are online, the code, the analysis is online. It was also pre-registered. We try to put everything online now so that people can actually use it and check what we wanted to actually find with this paper. As for what is best, it's a complicated question, right? There's a lot of things to consider. The first thing we wanted to consider, which we think is the most important one, is can these in any way reduce the cliff effect? Can we somehow make it that this drop of confidence doesn't happen around 0.05? That was the one thing we're really interested in. But there's also other factors, obviously. Aesthetics are one. Do people like it? Because if it's something that's visually pleasing, they're more likely to use it as well, right? So even if we find something that works better in terms of clip effects, if people don't like it much, they're unlikely to use it. So that's something that we also ask them, or we had this for the experiment, people could just comment on all the visualizations to say whatever they, they, they wanted, whatever they liked about one or the other. We also asked them to rank them in order and explain why. But there's also other factors to look at. For instance, if you consider a classical 95% confidence double visualization, just a, a line, it's very space efficient. If you have to show a lot of these in a single figure, you're probably going to go for this one. You don't want to use this rectangle gradient visualization. And even the violin plot, they're going to take a lot of space, which uh, can be annoying in some cases where you have a lot of different ones to show on a single figure. So there are lots of things that we consider as good for, for this kind of problem. I guess there's a problem of space efficiency, there's a problem of aesthetics, there's a problem of the cliff effect, which is the one thing we're mostly interested in. Now, something that we I think mentioned in the future work of this is perhaps there's the way to actually 
have these graphs as something that is interactive. So when you have a lot of variables that are shown on a single figures, then you could see them as just a classical 95% confidence interval. But when you try to look at, to compare two confidence intervals, for instance, you could zoom in and then they would appear as, let's say, violin uh, confidence intervals. And then you would get the best of both worlds in this case. Hey, Data Skeptic listeners, we're launching another survey and we'd like your help. If you've got two minutes to spare, please take our survey at dataskeptic.com survey. Your feedback helps us deliver the quality content you can find from Data Skeptic, and you might just win a free t-shirt. So do me a favor and head over to dataskeptic.com survey and tell us about yourself. Let's get into the experiment, maybe starting with some of the experimental design. Can you talk about the people who have participated and how you collected your data? So basically the experiment was run online. We had it online for a couple of days, I think 21 days, which is what we pre-registered. And we shared it on a lot of different channels. One of them being Slack, this, this Slack group with people I know from my field that are very interested in statistics. So the name of the group is Transparent Statistics. People work a lot on visualization and statistics, what is done okay in human-computer interaction and visualization and what is not. And how can we improve this, give guidelines and these kind of things. So we shared that with these people, but we also shared on Twitter, Reddit, LinkedIn, Facebook, trying to get researchers only. So the call was for researchers working with this kind of things. So we made sure at the beginning of the experiment that we actually ask people like, do you have an understanding of this? And if not, please don't do the experiment. So I guess it's mostly targeted towards people who work with this kind of data. And we got researchers from different fields, which is something that's quite interesting. So we had people obviously from the fields of visualization and human computer interaction, but we also had people from more like natural science or people from statistics as well. So that was quite interesting to see these three different groups and they actually have different preferences when it comes to preferences of visual representations for different reasons. Do you have any anecdotes that help encapsulate that? So that's the one that I mentioned before about the violent CI plots, where some people actually mentioned that they could interpret them as classical violent plots, which could be not nice because they're too similar to them. And it's definitely coming from statisticians, because I think people in my field, visualization or human computer interaction, they probably have never seen one of these plots for most of them. But of course, like if you look at the subjective ranking, because we asked them to, to rank the different visual representations. People working in visualization obviously prefer things that are a bit more visual than the classical text or classical confidence interval. And statistician often are like saying also they could give feedback. Well, you know, the classical CI is, is nice. So you have these people you've recruited who are going to participate, essentially become the data set, right? Your observations of them. What are you asking them to do? Are they just ranking visualizations? Are they answering questions about some visualizations? So first we asked them for their background so we could categorize them. But then the idea was we're going to give them a fake experimental data set where we look at specific drug and we ask them, we give them data about it. So we give them p-value and confidence interval in all the forms I mentioned before. And we asked them, how confident are you that this specific drug, it was about a drug, has a positive effect on whatever. And they always had to click on this small slider. We wouldn't show any initial position, so we don't bias them at all. And they have to go through several repetition of this with the same visual representation, but different p-values in this case. So they would have a p-value of 0 0.04, a p-value of 0 0.05, a p-value of 0 0.06, a p-value of 0 0.1, one of 0 0.5, and one of 0 0.001. And then they would switch to another visual representation and do this all over again. And in the end, we would just analyze the confidence that they give for each of these p-values that they saw in different case with different visual representation. What are some of the properties we would hope to see in the result then if there was no cliff effect? 
would it be linear and smooth? What, what would you expect given some null hypothesis? I guess something linear would be something quite nice to, to obtain there. So what we found is that obviously not linear, even though some, some of the visual representations seem to help. We didn't find anything linear there. But you would expect something linear because that's basically you get to 0, 0.5 and it's no magic decrease from there. It's just, okay, 0 0.05. Now it's 0 0.06. So you do expect something linear there. But that's not what we found at all. Even with the best of these visual representations, the one that reduces the cliff effect the most, there's still a drop of confidence that you see quite clearly. But before this 0.05 value and after it, you do see linear trends, which is something that is quite interesting. So everything is pretty much linear. You get to 0.05, there's a drop, or actually maybe sometimes 0.04 already, you can start to see it. The drop stops around 0.06 and then it's linear again. The ideal case would be to have everything linear. In terms of the different visualizations you tried, which seemed to reduce the cliff effect the most? So the gradient CI, the one with the um, rectangle idea, and the violin CI, they do seem to reduce the cliff effect more than confidence intervals. So previous work in the domain, there was conflicting evidence. Some people said that classical confidence interval could reduce the cliff effect. Others said that they don't. They can even be worse. In our case, we found that the confidence interval, classical one, and textual p-values were pretty much the same. The drop of confidence is a bit less dramatic around 0.05 for the classical CI, but overall they exhibit the same kind of behavior. But the other two that we tried in the first experiment, they seem to quite seriously reduce the cliff effect. I'm not sure this one is clearly better than the other. Both of them did a good job at reducing the cliff effect and they're also like visually pleasing. That was reported by the participants of the experiment. So uh, I'm not sure this one is really better than the other in this case. Maybe we need to investigate this a bit more. Well, how does it align with their subjective ranking? If we look at the subjective ranking that people are to, to give at the end of the experiment, I think it does align with this a bit. So we see that people don't tend to like too much the textual p-value and confidence interval, probably because it's hard to read and hard to interpret and quite hard to compare if you have several of them. But they, they tend to like a lot the classical confidence interval and our violin confidence interval. I think the violin confidence interval was really liked in terms of aesthetics. So that's probably something that was used there a lot to, to rank it as a good one. The graded one was not like too much, but still some people reported that it looked nice. So I think if we combine a bit these two pieces of information, we could say that violin confidence still might be a good candidate for reducing the cliff effect because it's also quite liked by, by the participants. But at the same time, the differences with the gradient CI or the classical CI are not huge. So it's quite hard to know there. And I know you also got some qualitative feedback from the users. Well, first off, do you get the sense that most of them were aware of the cliff effect and maybe you know have some expertise in reading these things? Or do you think they were unaware that that's what you were studying for the most part? Yeah, exactly. That's the thing people have to remember if they read that paper or if they use these conclusions. Given how the experiment was shared online, mostly by people who work on these kind of things, on NHST, on the problem of dichotomous thinking and dichotomous inferences, these people also actually did the experiment and then they shared it to, to friends and like retweeted the link to the experiment. So it's, it's people who are interested in this initially, I think, or at least a large proportion of the people who actually did the experiment were interested in this initially. So I think most of them knew about the cliff effect, even though they probably didn't have the name for it. They knew that there's this drop of confidence around 0 0.05. Uh, so that's something that we also have to take into account in our results. We didn't see a huge cliff effect on, on all of these conditions, actually, probably because these people are aware of this a bit. All our results have to be taken 
bring up Colt when it comes to that, because they're probably aware of this. They know that we, we study this. I mean, they, they figured it out quite fast if they didn't know at the beginning. In a way, it's maybe a best case scenario. These are professionals who have the best chances of producing confidence intervals without the cliff effect, yet you still find it. So do I blame the statistics community or do I blame the data visualization community? <laughs> How about none of these? Uh... <laughs> I think there's this, I mean, it's, it's a very human reaction to want an answer to questions we have. And it's, it's very easy to fall in this trap of actually interpreting data in a very binary way. I know that in my work, it's something that I try to avoid all the time. And I've got comments from, from reviewers or from colleagues sometimes reading what I'm writing in my papers saying, well, you, you say you're trying to avoid the dichotomous interpretation, but this is very dichotomous when I read this sentence. And it's just in the way I frame it as well sometimes, you know? And I think in this case, it's more of a natural tendency to just want an answer, which is fine. I guess as long as readers are aware of this, you know, if, if you read a statement from researchers that says, we found this and that means that this drug is efficient. And if you know that you have to look at the data as well to confirm this, because if he, the researcher just used a threshold that's pretty random to begin with, and you don't look at the data, you're just going to trust whatever the conclusion says. But if, if you're someone who understands this, you need to know that you have to look at the, at the data. The problem is when the data is not available. I think in most fields now, this is quite okay. But in some fields, you still see papers reporting P less than 0.05 only and not exact P values. And I think that's where the problem comes. If it's just reporting of P less or P greater than, then how can I interpret for myself? How can I judge your conclusion based on data you have if the data is not even available, if the P value is not even available? Not even to mention that your data is online and I can run the scripts again. Just this idea that if you don't provide me with an exact p-value, I cannot judge for myself. And it's something that's quite tricky with other colleagues. We actually looked at this in my field on how people report the statistical results. And we looked at two things. What do they actually report? What are the figures they report? So do they report p-value inequalities only or exact p-values? Do they even report confidence intervals? Because that's not something that's common in every field. And then how do they interpret that? Do they tend to go for dichotomous interpretations. So for that, we actually used a script that did it automatically to look at the texts they basically had in the paper and to go for p-value reporting and then try to figure out if they use the words significant in a text. And then we actually found out that most papers in my field over the last 10 years are very, very dichotomous. Despite numerous calls to be worried about this and to actually pay attention to your interpretation, to not be too dichotomous, to try and always present the data exactly, there's still a lot of papers that just report p-value inequalities and are very, very binary in the way they interpret them. And this kind of thing is probably what started the replication crisis in psychology. It's just, if I can't interpret the data myself and you just put your conclusion there, how can I know? How can I read this? How should I read this? Should I just trust you on this? What's the difference between you know, 0 0.049 and 0 0.051? For me, they're quite close. But if you don't provide me with that data, I cannot possibly know. Well, there are some journals that have gone in exactly the opposite direction and banned p-values and confidence intervals. But what do you think about this very strong reaction? I understand where they're coming from. I think it made sense or like that's something that's rational to do. But at the same time, I don't think that the statistical test and the p-value per se is the problem or the confidence interval per se is the problem. The problem is in the way we read them. I don't think that we should stop using a tool because people don't use it correctly. I think we should just make sure that everyone is educated enough to use it in a way that's okay. 
way and let people write their results correctly and provide all the data. I think the focus should be more on being transparent than on banning per se a specific tool. If everything is available, I don't see a problem with someone actually even being too dichotomous in a way in their interpretation. If all the data is there, if I can access it, run the scripts again, I guess that's fine. I can just rerun it on my own, try another, run the, ex the same experiments with different participants and see where this leads. Then everything is fine in that case, right? I don't know, that's my take on it. I think transparency is the one thing that matters the most and not the tools per se. So I'm not sure banning is a smart move in this case. Yeah, I would tend to agree. Yeah, that's a good question of what will be the consequence. Yeah, I don't know what it led basically in terms of like, what was the result of this? Like, did they get papers that were more robust, like, or analysis that were more thorough, or I have no idea what it led them to, to have a submission. Or perhaps more vague. Yeah, it's just, if it's just more vague and like, people just don't conclude anything, but still also don't actually analyze any data anymore, I don't know what it led to. I'm just not sure it's the right answer to it. I've seen numerous calls for this and people tend to react quite strongly. Either they support it completely or they don't. I'm more for transparency. I think this is the right way to go, but not only for, for data analysis, also for the whole process, you know, because... There's lots of things that you could actually not report in a paper if you test for a specific hypothesis, but then in the end, find something else in your data, but that was not the thing you were looking for. Well, that should be set somewhere, right? And all these tools now on OSF.io to pro-register your data, analysis, all of these have to be used. I think this is where the focus should be on transparency and openness, first of all. Yeah, I think you and I are very closely aligned on that. I certainly wouldn't want to take away these tools, maybe just help educate people better about them. Although having read your paper, I might also think, hmm, instead of a confidence interval, perhaps I should use one of these other visualizations. If I'm trying to reduce the cliff effect, I might get a better result. Would you have any recommendation for people who are at the publishing stage right now, considering how they display and uh, show uncertainty in their results? I think considering the, the results we have, these visualizations are quite promising. But the, the problem that some statisticians underline that they sometimes can be misinterpreted as well because they look like other visualizations uh, is something that we have to be very careful of. So I don't know if the switch should happen now to using these kind of more elaborate visual representations. That's a possibility. But then as a couple of them already mentioned uh, in, the, in the experiment, then we need to make sure that the caption makes sense and really highlights that this is not, for instance, a classical violin plot. So I don't know if I would consider using them right away. Maybe it's something that's good for teaching first, you know, to undergrads or grad students going with these and helping them analyze their data with this. And then when they look at the classical confidence interval, that they would just remember that this is exactly this. And then they will remember that, yeah, the, the Confidence interval, the 95% one stops there, but there's other values you could use that are like much larger in the end. And if they keep that in mind, then I guess their analysis could be less cliffy in the end, hopefully. Uh, that's also one possibility to just use them for, for educational purposes. Definitely. Well, I'm very eager to see this line of work continue and more research along these lines. With that in mind, what's next for you? There's a couple of things that we actually want to keep working on this a bit because we think that the data we obtain is a bit biased in terms of participants being already aware of these kind of problems. So maybe we would like to test these again with a less biased sample this time. The interactive idea is also something that is worth going for, I guess. Trying to see if we can actually implement that in a way would be quite nice. Well, where can people follow you online? Twitter mostly, at Lonnie Besançon. I talk about the papers uh, that I work on uh, on Twitter a lot and try to share experiments links there. So if people are interested in this and want to participate in future experiments on this, definitely the kind of thing they should follow on Twitter. A very cool, really neat citizen scientist opportunity there. I guess to wrap up then, what else do you have coming out or anything interesting in the future you want to tease the listeners about? 
Yes, yeah, so I worked with a couple of other people on paper that's going to come out soon on threats of a replication crisis in computer science. So it's a paper that we submitted to communication of the ACM that should be published very soon. The idea there is to try and identify whether or not a replication crisis could happen in computer science. And so to answer that question, we look at the top journals in a couple of fields and looked at whether people were actually dichotomous in their interpretation. And we found that they were quite often. And if you combine that with the lack of transparency, very often on the data analysis, the lack of data as well, the data is often not online, and all the other risks that they were through the publication process, we concluded, uh, yeah, there, there might be a risk for computer science to one day actually go through a replication crisis. So that's a paper that's supposed to come out soon. I think it will uh, probably bring some strong reaction, but I'm looking forward to the discussions like it will spark. Yeah, very exciting. Looking forward to reading that. Well, thanks again so much for coming on the show to share your experience in this work and talk about your research. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to Data Skeptic. Our guest this week was Loni Bizonsaw. Our theme song is Number 5 by Big D and the Kids Table. Claudia Armbruster is our associate producer. Vanessa Bursiaga does guest coordination. I've been your host, Kyle Polich. And hey guys, this week extra credit. Go read Tufty, find the Cleveland and McGill paper, and read the references from there. <laughs> <laughs>